So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But, you? but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. All right, class, today you're going to hopefully learn a bunch about archery. Uh, maybe not. You'll just hear two guys talking shit. But I've got Josh Jones with Spokane, Spokane Valley Archery uh, on the podcast. Josh works a lot with uh, Dan Staten. And uh, I'd actually had talked to Dan when I was at the Utah Tech about trying to get Josh on the podcast. But uh, here we are. So what's cracking, man? How's things going in your great state? Uh, well, you know, it is Washington, so there is that. Um, but in general, uh, things are pretty good. We're, we've got new products coming in, starting to do reviews and starting to launch videos. I've got a four starting tomorrow for Hoyt and Matthew stuff supposed to be in the tail end of the week and get those knocked out. Uh, it's our slow time right now, which is nice. We get caught up and cleaned up and organized and, you know, get some more structure from the chaos that we've experienced previous in uh, the busy seasons. But, uh, yeah, all in all real good. I can't complain too much. Yeah. And then are you, um, I'm assuming, and I, I don't fuck around in Washington or North Idaho anymore. Uh, you're, you're the, one of the larger pro shops there. Are you the only pro shop there? Do you have much competition? Uh, we're the, uh, we're the largest pro shop in the Western United States at this point. Um, but, uh, there, well, when yeah, you there's, say there's a small shop that's opened in North Coeur d'Alene, but which is like a half hour away, but outside of that, there's nothing. Well, when you say larger define larger, cause I, I know you're not bigger than no limits. So I'm assuming you mean by total sales, like what, what, what are you sales. basing that off of? Total sales. Um, I know where I rank with, um, volume and sales. Gotcha. Uh, with manufacturers. So I don't know exactly how much they do, but. Oh, I meant uh, the size of their building. They have a 40 yard indoor range. Oh, that's no, no, I mean. 80 yeah, lanes I mean, wide. I'm, yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, that would be a dream. I'd love to have that at some point. <laughs> yeah. I know. And I mean, the only reason I say that is people that gets thrown out a lot. You know, I'm the largest shop. It's like, well, are you large? You know, because you got a lot of shooting lanes. Are you large because you sell a lot of Matthews? And so you're just saying gross sales. You're the largest from what you know of. Gross, anyway. gross sales from what I know of. I'm the largest shop in the Western United States. Gotcha. And I knew you were pretty big. I mean, not and again, not, I, not that you have a tiny shop, but I mean, I knew you were um, pretty well. And I, where I you popped up for me is anytime I do a review or I have a piece of gear, I try to, like, YouTube and see what else pops up. Um whether that be just some dude I've never heard of or, you know, and so I'll base kind of my thoughts off what some of what I see or not base. I will look what some people's thoughts are base, basing them off of and kind of like, okay, maybe I'm out to lunch and I need to relook at this again or nope, they're having the same problems or whatever. And, and you've popped up when I've, you know, looked through that before. So. Cool. Well. So I guess one of the first things, the vein deal you guys did, obviously that stirred up all stirred up all kinds of, you know, shit. But you, you, I mean, you move. It looks like quite a bit of all products. But I'm, I'm assuming you have your favorites um, of your own, meaning bow, arrow, broadhead, whatever. Like, what do you? What are your personal favorites as far as is uh, kind of setups go? Well. Um I'm constantly evolving and changing like, um, like 
I, I would assume anybody who's playing with stuff and I, I will deliberately play with things that I'm not sure how well they'll work just to see if they work well or not. Um, I'm currently playing with the DCA stuff on veins because it's new and it's different and I want to do see its ability and whatnot. It's hard, uh, it's hard to go get away from a rip TKO to be honest, as far as arrows are concerned. Um, all in all for what it weighs durability factor. I, I like to run, um, if I can, a lighter shaft and more point weight um, in an arrow configuration in general. And I'm always trying different broadheads. I think I've shot four different broadheads this year at animals already. Um, I wanna find what works best because I'm trying to give that feedback back to the consumer. So I'm trying to recommend what in what I've tested has worked better, um, but mostly, in general, this year I've used RIP TKOs and RIP XVs um, from Victory on Arrows. Uh, I've played with DCA veins most of the year and had really good results. Um, didn't see a drop variation from similar weight products. Uh, so I, I went with them and they were really accurate. I shot them out to 200 yards with my antelope set up with pretty consistent accuracy. So I was pretty happy with that. And then I've played with several different broadheads this year. I've played with a Sever. I've played with a, uh, oh, uh, a a, what is it called? An assailant, I think, from um, Slick Trick. It's like a fixed blade, two blade mechanical. Um, and then uh, there are Raptor tricks. I didn't have any of the, uh, after the uh, Schwacker video, I was like, well, I want to shoot a broadhead like that and see what kind of results I get personally when I went on my latest uh, deer hunt um, that I just got back from. And I didn't have one of theirs, but the Raptor trick kind of looks like a very similar broadhead. So I tried that out and uh, bent the blades on it. Um, and I just making ribs, so I wasn't super elated with that. But uh, in general, I, I play around with a lot of stuff. I make some of my own components and whatnot. I have titanium inserts uh, for five millimeter. I really believe five millimeter is the better way to go, uh, just due to your part of your thread at least being inside the arrow, as opposed to like your four millimeter or mm. one six six, where the entire components outside of the arrow. It's just so much so, more let's, difficult to keep. No, straight. Let's, Halt there. Would your view, because I'm with you, except when I can have a glue in 166 system and then that sways back to yeah. 166. Would you agree? Because yeah, I, no, I, I fucking hate I micro diameter components. I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody's made a great one yet. Um, but yeah, glue in is, I like, I loved the uh, original Deep Six system. If you could find a good broadhead to work with it, um, I thought that was a phenomenal option in the 166 as long as you had like a, a collar of some sort on the end of the arrow to keep it all straight but yeah i'm i'm excited to see there's like oh i think five or six now different glue in options which is cool i've been begging for that for like six seven years since those arrows started to become popular yeah and i mean i've been working with um a few different companies push you know when i say work pushing them to try to do it and and actually what I just did a, a broadhead review. It's not out yet. And that's one of the things that swayed one of the, the, the winner was because there was a, a, a glue in system for a 166 with that, that had field points and fixed blades and mechanicals for, with a glue in system. And, and, and I'm, I'm with you. Like it's pretty hard to beat a five mil, uh, you know, internal hit insert, uh, for concentricity, durability, everything else and, and ease of use plus wind drift. It, it sounds like you're, kind of the same views with that then yeah yeah for sure um 
Uh, I'd love to see everybody making a variety of things that would fit the 166 better in, in glue-in, and I'd like to see 204 glue-ins a lot, just because it's you're you're eliminating the weak point. You know, you know just as well as I do when you're threading stuff together, that's the likely place for it to fail. Um, so it's nice to see options, and uh, I I I liked your system that you did with Bill. Um, that that thing seems like super solid. Uh, it'd be nice to see some other price point options for you know consumer who can't afford that but still get some durability but what a great system i mean i i dig that well and how old are you um just so i can i'm 44 okay we're not too far apart so like hodgepodging shit together 20 25 years ago sucked right there wasn't a lot of people don't know how lucky they have it nowadays and you know i used to like glue hit inserts together when i say glue them together Mm -hmm. i would wedge to you know like trying to get a little bit more weight up front and then you know i used to cut aluminum arrows down for basically what you have as a collar now because you didn't have that Mm -hmm. back then i'm sure you went through all the same stuff and so now um some of the things that i see are are, and i said that on the vein video you're kind of picking fly shit out of chili on some things and when i say that I'm curious your thoughts on the veins because for me, there's a few different things of importance that may not be as as important as others. Meaning, um, I want it quiet. That's a big one. I, I want it to, yeah. to stabilize. But as far as it dropping more at longer distance, I'm really not concerned. And I will drop bomb shoot far, but I, I don't. Most guys shouldn't be shooting that far anyway. But give me your views on that. Because for me, I'm like, ah, they're all pretty damn good. It's really personal preference and a few slight variations. But let's hear your thoughts. I, I'm right with you with that, to be honest. I, the, a vein's got to be relatively stiff because it'll t- typically stabilize a little quicker. Um, but it's got to be quiet more than anything. And I'm, I'm right there with you. That's amazing how loud some of these things are. You don't realize it. And it's like, Sound travels faster than our arrow, so if it's making noise, they're going to hear it first, and you can see that reaction in certain instances in hunting. So, sounds huge. Um, I, I agree, people shouldn't aren't going to shoot that far and drop. Really, isn't that big of a deal. My only reason for pointing it out is it seemed like they were missing the fact that those arrows should be winged slightly differently based off of what they built. And they didn't mention that. And that was where my original criticism came in. Um, Levi said they tried to um, use like a, the heavier of an arrow with a lighter vein to try to get them closer in weight, but not a hundred percent exactly the same. And that's where I kind of struggled with the outcome of why I said what I said. Um, but in any event, yeah, like noise is probably my number one, and then quick recovery is probably my number two. Stiff is great, but if stiff hits something going by, it's going to kick the arrow out a little farther too. So really recovery would exceed stiffness, but and that's going to be a shape thing, but typically a stiffer vein will recover quicker too. At least that's been my experience. But what, what, what have you found? Yeah, I mean, yes. And I <laughs> like trying to do this vein review, you know, and I did a quick video. I say quick, it was 11 minutes trying to explain some of the veins I've been using. And I, uh, Dan, uh, Picard asked a question. He's like, wait, you're saying the two inch SK silent nights, uh, were one of the loudest, but the three inch were really, uh, quiet. And I'm like, well, that in context, the four fletch SK two silent night was one of the loudest high profile veins I tested in four fletch, the three inch silent night and three fletch was one of the top five quietest. And it's like, look, I didn't make the rules. I just shot the arrow. A four-fletch high-profile vein 
is going to be louder, loud as shit compared to pretty much anything else as a rule of thumb from my experience. So I just don't see a need to shoot high profile four fletch. A low profile four fletch isn't as bad. Uh, but again, you're really picking fly shit out of chili other than noise and noise is king for, for me. So leaving like the review with Levi out of there, just you and I shooting the, you know, the, the shit with this, mm-hmm. um, you know, t- <laughs> the, the quietest vein I've shot, which will be, the, I guarantee will be the quietest vein made for a while is one that's not on the market yet, but it's got some downsides. It, it gets waves in it. It's from AAE. They it's, it's, you will freak when you shoot one, if you haven't, it is dead silent. But it has waves in it if it blows through a target. And and dude, when I say it's quiet, I'm also shitting on it because it has waves. You know, when it goes through a target, it will not recover. It, it well, they won't no sure. blow dryer, and it's not coming back. So with you, when you're setting up, like you said, I've tried the sabers out as well. I know why I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool. This is working. Why why a saber vein? Why not something else? I mean, I think your brain works like me. You just want to fuck around with stuff, but. So when you say yes, would you say you could hunt with any of those veins and do fine? Meaning you could hunt with a hybrid, you could hunt with, you know, whatever. What percentage of difference would uh-huh. you say there is from a Sabre to a 2.6 hybrid to a 2.75 tack to a picket? I think those are all going to be very similar in, uh, in how they respond and how they impact. Um, I have gotten to a point on... On like three fletch, if you get down to like a two three hybrid, I, I don't think it stabilizes. I always see 100%. the back end of the arrow wobbling at distance. Yep. Um, so that that one, I even on a mechanical, I I think that's a little too small. Hundred percent agree. Even at a four, I tried, it still didn't seem to stabilize quite as good. So with the the four two three hybrid, I would I would say that. And I'm not disagreeing, I'm agreeing with you. This is kind of what I'm wanting people to hear us talk about is when you go so small, right? it's like a right or left wing wacko, there is a point where you're like, what the fuck are you even trying to accomplish, right? Like, why do you need certain things? And when I say that, like, do you really want to go with a 175 four-fletch low profile what are you, why are you doing that? Like what, what, does it look cool? Like that, what are you gaining? And you, you're losing stability and in a, a two, three, four fletch. And that's, I just tested a bunch of this stuff. So a two, three, the quietest four fletch I can find, or one of the quietest is a two, three hybrid is pretty dang quiet. Four fletch It's not the quietest one of them, but why would I shoot that? And that's what I was trying to convey in the, like, why? Like it doesn't do any good for me. Like I'd, I'd get no bonuses out of this. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Uh, out of curiosity, what did you use to measure the sound? Uh, I had a, de- well, the redneck way. So I do it both ways, dude. I'm old school. I use a decibel meter, and I set that up in two different locations. But honestly, dude, I like the human ear. I don't, I mean, I get people are like, oh, it's not as accurate. It's like, you know what? Deer have ears. Humans has ears. I stick a few buddies down range, and I'm like, blind, blind choice. What, which one, you know, and, and we test that against the decibel meter, but there's some that are a different pitch and I don't know what your views are on this, but when you shoot a saber, it's not louder, but it sounds different. And, and that's what we have found. And so on the decibel meter, it may be the same like amount of noise, but it's got a different sound to it when it comes down range. 
Yeah, it does sound a little different. And I guarantee you it's, it's frequency pitch and how the ear reacts to it. But the, the funny part is what does a deer or an elk's ear hear in frequency pitch compared to ours? I guarantee it's different. Different, yep. I know. I, so if, I if we're working on a premise of a frequency pitch, right, then what good is it to have a human being's ear for it other than I think that's louder than the other one? When I go to shoot an animal, if it reacts less, then I know that frequency pitch was a bonus. And that's why I like the human ear. That's why, 100%. Because if I shoot a saber and it was as loud as a hybrid, and I've shot hundreds of animals with a hybrid, but the saber's white tails aren't ducking, well, I would have never known that without the human ear involved. Sure. So that's that's why I do it. Well, and... I mean, I would imagine if you and I lived by each other, there's no level of geeking out. We wouldn't, you know, probably do because when you get two guys that like to test this, but ha- when when you when you do it, do you just use a decimal meter? You don't redneck it at all with you send somebody downrange. Uh, no, I've I've done a combination. We've had we've had a buddy hide behind a target downrange and shoot past it or that kind of thing. I've definitely done that, but in general, it's a decibel meter, and I try to. I try to do things that can be duplicated and have a, a tangible number, whether that's, you know, accurate or not, because at least it's measurable, something that's measurable that you can show to the public because the public will criticize you if you don't. Um, I, for personal use stuff, and I'll make decisions based off of personal opinions, but when I publicize things, it's, it's something I try to do tangibly. Yeah. And that makes total, and I don't do, I don't give a shit as much. Like if you don't want to listen to me, I don't, I'm like, all right, then don't, you know what I mean? I'm like, Hey, this is my, yeah. my thoughts and my views. But I, I will agree. Like when, when people ask like with the decibel meter or, you know, if I'm testing durability on a broadhead or whatever else, it's, it's, it's like, okay, Hey, I shot through this thickness of plywood this many times before a blade broke, but I could have hit a knot. I could have hit a, you know, pick it. Right. And so other things that I test are more precise and exact. But in in the end, and you're probably, it sounds like a little bit different than me. In the end, a lot of it's just, this is my personal choice for what I tested in my warm and fuzzy feeling, whether I have a lot of tangible data or it's a little bit of tangible data, a lot of animals with holes in them, uh, and a little bit of redneck ingenuity, um, or I say redneck reasoning, Sometimes my reviews are all of that and not just tangible data because sometimes tangible data doesn't perform in the field as well that I have found. And I, I would, I would be curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, when I, like I try to do a review in the manner in which there's tangible data, but that doesn't mean that's what I'm going to pick. Right. Give, give so it I'll a- still, when I'm deciding on my own stuff, it will be a, a level of, redneck ingenuity of this just seems better to me. You have an example of, of that. If you, if you can think of one. Um, well, let's see here. <laughs> um, well, I, I personally, in most instances would use, um, uh, an arrow that I wouldn't rank as high. Um, like uh, I'll use a rip XV a lot and I wouldn't rank it as high as I would a rip TKO or, um, like a gold tip airstrike. Um, I would rank those arrows a little higher, but I personally prefer lighter weight stuff because I've just, I've never had penetration issues. And I'm a big dude. I have a long draw length and I shoot a lot of weight. So I don't feel I need the same thing that I would recommend to an average individual. Um, so the tangible data would point to me using, you know, like a RIP TKO configuration, but I would probably gravitate more to a RIP XV with similar characteristics and things in it, like uh, similar insert weight, similar tip weight, that sort of thing on the same spine, but a lighter shaft. 
So that's an example of I'd rather use that, even though the data probably points me in a different direction. Yeah, no, and I, I, I agree on that um, too. And I, you know, one of the things I've found arrow wise is um, while it's cool to, um, you know, shoot like the straightest arrow made, I found um, one, how you build the arrow and obviously spine consistency is a lot more important than perfect straightness. Not to say you don't want to shoot um, if you can afford it, the straightest arrow made, but I, I found how you build your arrow or the the level of effort you put into that and the spine consistency is quite a bit more important than it being 0001 consistency. And, and, and I don't know if you found that or not, but that's been my... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah squaring the front end and your, your point coming straight out of the arrow and your spine consistency pointing in the right direction is way more important than how straight the arrow is. If the knock's square in the back and the point's square in the front, it'll typically track straight everything else being equal, but they tend to put the more consistent arrows in the one foul lot. So when you're spinning through them, you're likely to find arrows that are a little more consistent other than spine consistency, depending on which brand we're talking about. Yeah. I was just saying, I'm going to have to argue it on that one, but it sounds like I'm not arguing that has a lot to do with the brand in, in from what yep. I've seen. And, and I don't want to mention brands here, but I, there is specific, companies even on the higher level uh shafts that they sell i seem to get an outlier from those and if i put it on the ram um it it will it will have spine issues in comparison to other companies their mid level will have far better tolerances on spine consistency but that, again that's a lot to do with the brand of arrow mhm yeah so what what, sure. what what do you what what do you prefer arrow wise it sounds like you're a big a victory guy well, it's the, it really boils down to the grains per inch for me because I'm usually trying to build something in a given weight category and they make arrows that are the weights that I would prefer to play with. Um, the consistency and durability in, uh, in their woven uh, rip TKO stuff and BAP TKO stuff um, tends for the weight to be a little more durable in the testing I've done. But it really, for me, it, it really just boils down to, to weight of GPI and I'll it's the, same, it's the same thing I talked to um, arrow manufacturers about. I was like, this is the weight that the majority of people are going to want in the diameter that they're going to want, and it's kind of important to make this. Um, and you can get, you know, like a nine-grain GPI, five-millimeter arrow in a 300 spine in multiple brands now. Like, there's like four or five that all make roughly that arrow. Uh, and that's t generally what I recommend people to because you're going to end up with a 450 to 475 grain, you know, 150-ish in the front, um, standard build, that's going to get you close to 15% forward to center with a decent amount of overall mass, which is what I recommend in general. So I, I tend to push that direction because I think that works better for the majority of the masses. Yeah, I would agree. I, I've, I don't ever really check my, you know, FOC. I just always try to throw like 175 up front and I, I kind of, but it, I'm sure you're the same. I've done it long enough that I want to know, okay, I want to be around this many GPI. I want to have this much up front. And I, you know, I know I'm going to be around this speed with that. Cause I, and I, cause I don't like to shoot a super fast bow, which is something else. I mean, what are your thoughts on, you know, I'm kind of a 280 guy, plus or minus 270 to 280, 285 is kind of my higher end. Um, because I that's I've found that's like the best of all worlds for bow noise tunability things like that. But what where are you at on that? 
personally, I'm faster. Um, I've tunability has never been an issue for me in a, in a lighter arrow. I try to keep people in the 280, 290 range in general. Um, but my own personal stuff, I run it faster. Um, I get the concept of trying to keep your, your bow a little quieter. And by increasing the mass of your arrow or lowering your poundage, you're going to gain that. Um, but I personally, over the years, I've been hunting with a bow since I was nine. Um, reaction time to me over every other issue has been the biggest problem I've seen um, in hunting. So in my brain, the faster I can get the projectile to the target, the less time they have to react. So I've always tried to speed it up as long as I felt like I had enough energy to, uh, to pass through whatever I was shooting at. So I'm, I'm the oddball, I guess, in that scenario. If you talk to a lot of people, a lot of people will try to keep you at that 280 to 290 realm. Um, and I understand why they're there. I've just, I've seen so many reactionary things where speed might've made a difference. And talking to customers over the years, which, you know, we, we service, you know, thousands of people every year. And it's a very common problem that the animal moved before my arrow got there. And the so, largest variable to that, to me, reaction time. And the faster you can shoot your arrow out of your bow, the less time that animal has to react. And so if you would have asked me in 2015, I would have said you're 100% correct and I would have never argued with you. Now, after shooting a stick bow, I will argue with you quite a bit. Um, and I only, <laughs> my views changed because <laughs> I shooting a whopping 175 feet per second and did not have animals move. And so for me, bow noise came a little bit more important. Now, as I say that, if you can shoot 290 to 300 and you can have a, I mean, technology is amazing, right? And you can shoot a quiet bow. Um, and you, you're, especially if you're not shooting a fixed blade, fuck, rub some funk on it. I, I'm not arguing you with that. But overall, and I would imagine, I'm just going to guess, you may take for granted your, well, maybe not, you own a pro shop, um, your level of ability to tune and your the things at hand that you have are not what everyone else does, which is why it sounds like you probably keep everybody in the two 80s. But I mean, as I say that, what level, right? When, when, when does one pass the other? When I say that, meaning... Does an extra 15 per second help or does dropping a few dBs on the, the old meter help? I mean, I don't think either one of us are right or wrong. I think it's what gives you a warm and fuzzy at the end of the day, gives you yeah. confidence. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I, I agree that um, one may be the cause and the other may be the cause. And it just depends on the, the instance that you're um, experiencing. Um, my, uh, my father um, was a traditional guy. Um, I hunted with... Uh, traditional for three years in my teens and killed a half a dozen animals and that sort of thing. And we used to videotape my dad back in the day on a really old school camcorder, you know, like 20 plus years ago. And with his traditional equipment, he experienced a lot of drop on whitetail at least. So to me at that point, I was like, well, sound is a factor, but it's still not a major factor because this thing's quiet and they're still reacting to it. So that's where part of my logic in my brain went, well, then speed would improve it. So, but I, I get where you're coming from too. Um, the quieter you can make your bow, the less likely the animal is to react. And there's a distance too, that seems to be a, a variable that helps with that. It's yeah. like, if you get past like 35 or 40, you don't tend to get the reaction. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I would much prefer shooting a deer at 45. 
than I would. (laughs) So, uh, well, and I mean, these are good conversations because it's like, I, you know, I'm not, when I say like, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong or, and I'm right or vice versa, but you know, it's what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, the other thing too, is I got used to the, the, you know, the, the, the arc of the arrow at 280. And when I say that, it's like a stick bow, that is important making shots through thicker shit. And if, you know, it's no, I mean, when I say that, like you get used to the arch of the arrow at a certain speed that does, whether it's in my mind or not important to me, if there's branches in the way, if I'm lobbing over something like I'm used to that. And, and that, that comes into play for my P, P, P brain as well, that I got used to that over time. Well, sure. That makes perfect sense. No different than a, you know, shooting a basketball or that sort of thing. You get a certain arc in it and you're used to it. You understand it and it's comfortable for you. And I totally get that. Yeah. But I, I, again, I think that what people really should do is listening to you and I babble back and forth and go figure it out. Um, that, that's the thing that yeah. I think a lot of times people are missing is just go figure it out. I mean, I, you know, just went and screwed around with bows for years and asked questions. And then you get to a point where you're kind of writing your own, you know, book, so to speak. Um, and then you can argue with us with your setup, maybe totally different. For sure. Yeah. I, what, what works for me or what works for you isn't necessarily going to work for every other person. It's more of a, a guideline for the average person's, you know, the success. And it's that 280, 290 range it tends to be where most people do well with. And I would agree it's a lot easier as well to, uh, to tune a bow at that speed and make sure make your broadheads and everything fly right at that speed. Uh, as bows get more sophisticated and as equipment gets more sophisticated, it gets easier to tune those things out. So I'd be interested to see if we uh, readdress this 10 years from now, if it's the same thing or if bow manufacturers are going to keep working on making their bows more tunable and more adjustable to where you can tweak those things out a little easier. That'd be uh, interesting topic. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And when, when, what we're talking about here for, and I'll give a few examples, um, you know, the donuts and the axles, if you're going to shim your cam over, were a nightmare. And, and actually some bow companies still use those and I hate it. And, uh, there was no string stop at one time. So the arrow stayed on the string longer. Um, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day, the riser was short. The limbs were extremely long. Um, cam efficiency speed all of those things have changed and it's you know you're old enough like you you remember like string stoppers i think came into play in 2004 maybe is that three four five Mm, that sounds sounds, well hang on let me think here yeah i think you're real close to that time frame um i'd have to go back and look at the bone manufacturing side of it i know sts is i'm sure pretty sure we're out before that which is the first one the original bolt-on string stop before they started integrating them into bows. And I think they were around earlier than that. I'm not positive. I'd have to go back and look at my, uh, at my history because we sold those. But um, I think you're a little, little before. I think it was like early 2000, like 2001, 2002, when the first product started coming out, but not integrated into bows. Gotcha. Yeah. And I don't, I, I'm trying to, I was in Washington when uh, that STS system came out. Cause I mean, it was comical cause guys were stripping out the back of their risers cause there was no bushing cause the, the riser mm-hmm. was just threaded. And that was a problem with certain people cause they'd crank that thing down and, and strip it cause not all bows then had a bushing in the back of it. Right. But so uh, while we're talking about technology, what, what have you, what would you say you've seen 
you know, in, in what's, I would imagine as a dealer, the tunability of the bow has made your life, um, night and day different from 20 years ago, as far as being able to actually work on one in, in a, in a speedier process. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's, there's definitely ones that do it easier than others, but in general, like I still remember when you'd go to make a tech call to a manufacturer cause you couldn't get a bow to tune and they just say, well, how's the group? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? That's your answer. Like you don't have a way to actually fix this problem. And that was, that, that drove me batty um, for years. And I'm, I'm so happy to see, you know, a wide variety of shims back when shims were really common. Um, Allen wrench adjustable wheeling systems. Uh, yokes were cool just because you could manipulate the position of the cam pretty easily. It was just, it would stretch. Uh, but that solved a lot of those problems if you had yokes, but all that stuff went away at one point. And uh, I remember tuning bows when everything was a dual cam in the 90s. And it was actually pretty easy to do because um, you had equal but opposite eccentrics, straight knock travel, and you could wheeling adjust the top and the bottom pretty easily. So I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, innovations like, you know, what Bowtech's doing, what Elite's doing, what PSE's doing, they're at least making it easy to change the spaces in and out. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there seems to be a lot of focus on that from most manufacturers. And I'm really happy to see that because it definitely makes our job a lot easier. And if you can explain to the consumer what that's doing and how it adjusts what he's doing, it might make him a little less scared to do it himself. And at the, uh, in the long run, I, I think our largest success is going to be when the consumer isn't afraid to work on his own stuff, which is scary to pro shops. It really is. There, there's a lot of people that are afraid that they're not going to be relevant. I don't, I don't agree with that philosophy. I think that you're just going to educate more people, and by educating more people, you're going to get more people into the sport. So I love seeing stuff that's easy for the consumer to digest to be able to work on his own bow, which is why I've been a, a – a big supporter of Bowtech because they make stuff that's really easy for the consumer to try to do. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, I'm shooting an elite now and that set set technology is handy. Um, I was yep. able, I was early enough on with, you know, PSE, I got to test out their new shim system before it was on the market, which was super cool. Um, and then obviously the deadlock, but I'm not overly familiar with Bowtech. I tune them every now and then, but the deadlock system, is that what, am I speaking out my ass in that what it's called? No, no, you're you're correct. The the cam drive system is called the deadlock, and then the uh, the new bows that just came out have the timing that was on the uh, the target bows, the time lock. So you can, you know, when you try to time a bow, and it'll just be out by like less than a half of a twist. Yeah, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, you can adjust that. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Well, and I mean, with that, you know, some of the and I, you know, I don't listen to like everything you and Dan do. Like I said, I'll just grab, you know, snippets or, or if I pull up something I'm looking for and I'll catch you, you know, doing at one time, it looked like you were in like a very tight quartered area doing some of these videos, uh, back in the day. Was that, am I remembering that correctly? It seemed like you were videoing like in a very tight quartered, like a basement or something. Yeah. So I took a, I took a small portion of my pro shop and made a small little area to test stuff in. And it was pretty tight quarters back then. I'm up at my, uh, in my house now in my, uh, my man cave, I guess you would say for testing stuff. It's, I can leave things set up in here and it's not a big deal. And it's easy to just come up here and leave the shop cause it's right next door to the shop. And 
run up and, you know, test a couple of bows, test a couple of products, record some stuff and edit it and get it out. So it's, it's a lot easier now, but originally, yeah, I was, I, I would say that it was more something I felt like had to happen, but I wasn't, didn't have the most confidence. It was going to be massively beneficial. So I didn't want to set up a whole bunch of space for it. It was just kind of crammed in a corner. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. And I, I that the thing you brought up early, like the, the quantifiable data, um, you know, that's the, like some people like, like, uh, John Lusk, like I had him help me with the, the broadhead review, you know, he does a very, you know, very methodical, um, you know, yep. t- you know, tests. And w- the one of the, one of the things I have a benefit of is, is shooting a, a whole lot of animals generally, not more than anyone, but I mean, I get to shoot a lot of stuff. And so it's handy to bump that off of quantifiable data, like, okay, well this sure. is, you know, and, and, and then, you know, generally, very rarely do you get something that tests really well and sucks in the field, but it, it can, it can happen. Um, but usually if something tests really well with somebody with your experience or John's or mine, probably going to be able to guess that it's going to do well in, in the field. Um, when you're testing, are you testing? I would imagine some of this is just cause you're a geek and you want to test like me. Some of it is to sell good product to people. Um, you know, and be able to show the differences. I mean, is it more for you, the geek in you, or is it more the, uh, or, or, or the other, on the other side of the fence where you just want to, you know, be able to whatever, sell a better product? I think it's probably a 50, 50, to be honest, the geek in me wants to know. And I was, I would did this stuff before I'd ever recorded. I'd constantly be messing with stuff and see what it did. And new bows would come in and I'd immediately be figuring out how fast they were checking their specs because you know, a lot of times you get varied results different than what it said. Um, but I would have conversations over and over and over with customers coming in the store asking questions about particular bows. And when I started making these videos, I all of a sudden wasn't having those conversations anymore for the most part. Like they already kind of digested whatever the new things were about the bow and what it did from my videos. So then they just come in, shoot them, decide which one felt good to them and go. So it ended up saving me a lot of time in the shop, uh, ironically, which was odd, but I would be doing it whether I made videos and shared it or not, because the nerd in me wants to know. Um, but it seems to have been a beneficial thing for the business or people to help, help them make decisions sooner. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, I get it on both, both sides and it, it's weird on some testing when I'm going through certain products, there's some, um, I'll, I'll, well, what site, what site do you prefer personally and what do you carry at your, your shop? Um, I'm still shooting personally a black gold dual track. Um, but I carry pretty much every site you can think up for the most part. Uh, I carry Excel, I carry spot hog, I carry option, I carry CBE, I carry trophy Ridge, um, uh, I carry Ultraview as soon as my shipment shows up. I mean, if I like sliders in general, whether it's multiple pinheads or single pinheads or dual pinheads, um, most of the customers are seem to be buying slider for us anyway. So if somebody makes a slider and it's of decent quality, I'll typically carry it. Yeah. Well, I, with the, with the slider sites, uh, multi-pin slider, single pin, um, I, um, try, um, when you, when you are setting someone up at your shop, uh, I'm assuming 
because it's difficult for, I would imagine you have a lot of amount of time that you are still profitable when you spend on a customer, uh, whatever that time may be. So a guy gets a full, full bow build, um, you know, top to bottom arrows and everything else at, at a certain point in time, because margins aren't that great on uh, archery equipment, uh, people, especially bows, um, which people think there's like a four or five X margin. There is, there is not on bows specifically. Um, at what point in time are you running into the negative? And I've, I've, I've never, you know, I've never heard like, like bad things about your shop. So obviously you're, you're doing pretty good because generally people will bitch to me if they're going to bitch to anyone is, uh, you know, it's trying to answer all the messages and stuff. So are you an hour and a half, two hours into that? Are you four hours into that? What are I, you, I, what are you spending? I'd say the average build is two hours plus. Um, and because we have a, a large online marketplace, I don't care how long it takes. I don't look at the shop and try to go, is this profitable or not? I just don't because we're making enough money with everything else coming in that I have always seen it as the job is what the job requires. And if it, if it doesn't end up being profitable, then you need to figure out what you're charging for stuff and change that. But because we have such a, a good online marketplace, I don't, I just don't even pay attention to it. I've had guys that are there for four or five hours before. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But we we tune about we tune bows, trying to not move the rest at all or very little, and always manipulating wheels and positioning and timing, and uh, the right spine arrow and playing with arrow spine if need be to tune. So we we tune at an elab- what I would call an elaborate level. I mean, everyone has their own opinion of what the right way to do it is, but I don't look at building a bow as how long it takes. It's simply how that it's done right period because it's a reflection of our work i've gotten some hate mail about what you just said from pro shops actually from a time or two or more than that um i and uh you know what's that i said okay let's hear it (laughs) uh so well no i mean i'm like you i i um to, to me um and and again i've worked at you know pro shops and obviously not the level josh has but i've definitely been around the block. And so I've seen walk in, cut it at 28 RPS insert, screw in, go crank the rest way left, crank it way right out the door. You go, it shot a bullet hole. You know, for, for me, I try to keep, and when I say center shot, I redneck it at first. I always have, I just look down the stabilizer. If the state, you know, obviously if it's in line with the riser and then I'll take a measurement roughly about what the, you know, there's a rough estimate of what all manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, give you 13, 16 or whatever the hell it is. But I try to keep her between the mayo and the mustard, like real damn close. And then I manipulate the bow from there and, or the arrow. And why don't you <laughs> talk about that from, and I've done tons of videos on this and I'm sure you have too, but manipulating the arrow or the bow for left and right, high and low uh, tears. And then also if you want to go into maybe a little bit of um, the cam timing portion of this, because sometimes you'll hear guys, oh, you want to put a a little bit more weight. Uh, You know, you want that top cam to hit a fraction before the bottom cam. And and people will listen to that online. I'm like, dude, you you can't hit a stop sign at 80 yards. That shit's not going to matter to you. But that is another level above where you're at. The level where you're talking is what I feel most shops should do. Correct. Yeah. Um, so I think it's probably been 
20 years now of it's I'm kind of adamant about not moving the rest back and forth more than like a 16th out of what square looks like. And much like yourself for the longest time, I would redneck it. I'd, I'd put an arrow in it, look at where the stabilizer is, try to find the central point of the riser where square would be where in theory it was designed to leave the bow and manipulate everything else around that. And that's whether you're adjusting wheeling or pitching a cam left and right or um, playing with arrow spine, i.e. stepper spine, weaker spine to make it bend a little differently. If you don't get that arrow to leave pretty close to 13 sixteenths off of the riser, when you start shooting a long ways away, it won't track. You'll start shooting a left to right variant that you can't get rid of or a, a broadhead field point impact that you can't get rid of. So for me, if we can't get a bow to do that, I won't sell the boat. It won't. I won't put it out in the world because something's wrong. And yes, you can move the rest left or right to try to force it to go a hole through paper, but that's that's not really tuned. That's simply getting the result that you're looking for and handing it to somebody and handing it off. Um, you have to have that. It has to be relatively square, which is what makes these bows, bows that move wheeling left and right really simple. And they're really adjustable and you can, you'll, you'll find instances like with a top hat or a spacer where you, you move from one to the next and you go from a right tear to a left tear. Well, that's the answer. And it's a relatively simple one. I wish they had more elaborate sizes of those things. So you can find a happy medium and push it right where you want to. But in my opinion, shops that refuse to pay attention to that, either don't understand how to work on a bow, don't care to work on a bow at a higher level, or just lazy. And I, I, if, that's, if that's offensive, then you might want to think twice about what you're doing for a living, in my opinion. Well, with, with what you're talking about, to add a little bit of context to it, um, I'll use Anders, for example, and Anders um, runs the office, and he has a legit 34-inch draw length, um, plus needing a D loop. So he's, he's a long, uh, armed individual and, 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 uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, fuck. um, so anytime, like I used to shoot 90 pounds a lot. And anytime you bring a 90 pound bro to a pro shop, you should just give them like a $20 tip at least. Cause you're about to get, you're about to fuck them over. Right. It is not yeah. easy to shoot, to tune, it, an 80 to 90 pound bow, and it's not easy to tune an extremely long draw length. And when I say that, it requires more. Um, from my experience, are you agree or disagree? Oh, 100%. Like the more you increase draw length, the more you increase mass, both of the or, or poundage, it makes everything harder by a long shot. Especially in an instance of like a 34 inch draw length guy, you're probably maxing out the cam. Anytime you run a cam maxed out, it's really hard to tune and keep tuned. It, and it was on a Hoyt, which are inherently hard to keep in tune from my experience. And I like Hoyt. I'm just saying yeah. some Hoyts are harder to keep in tune. So it was on a Hoyt Highline, which I, I think there's some Bowtechs that go to really long draw lengths. But the Hoyt Highline was kind of my, my I, I like that for longer draw lengths. So what Josh brought talked about was, you know, tearing right, shimming it over, tearing left. Well, when we started, I wanted him to shoot a 250 spine if possible, mostly because I had a shitload laying around dozens of full length 250 shafts and I didn't want him to buy arrows. So he had a, he had an overdraw, which I am <laughs> not a fan of those, but I'm like, all right, let's let it rip. So I, I cut one arrow down as short as I could with the overdraw and it was tearing weak. So we had a dead soldier because when I shifted the cam over, 
Uh, to the left, I was able to take the draw length off completely, or excuse me, the overdraw off completely, have it normal, and shoot a basically full length shaft uh, with without the overdraw. And then we had to throw that arrow away because I cut it too short, basically being a dumbass. I should have just shimmed the cam straight to the left. Um, but then he's tearing bullet holes with a 250 spine and 165 up front. And he doesn't need a lot of extra point weight up front for mass purposes because his shit's heavy because it's a full length 250 spine. <laughs> so I'm not loading up the, yeah, right. the front of that. Like <laughs> people with long draw lengths, you have to understand they're never going to, they're never going to hit high FOC unless they're shooting a freaking log down range. Cause they're, they're going to have to shoot a 250 or 200 spine no matter what, because they're drawing so long. So by the time that's said and done, they'd be to a 700 grain arrow with 200 up front. And I mean, dive into that because you probably deal with this shit way more than I do. Well, there's, there's a couple of options that will allow you to do it, but there's very, very few, almost everything. And as soon as you hit a 250, the weight goes up a lot, like a lot, a lot when you're looking at the GPI, but that's another reason why I gravitate back to the rip TKO. Cause in, when you go from a 300 to a 250, it's a 10th of a grain is it. So you've got a nine GPI 250 spine arrow that's durable. The uh, Rip XVs are lighter yet, but almost every other brand, when you get into a 250, is really heavy. So you're absolutely right, with the exception of like two or three arrows in the market that you can get away with that. Now going to a 200, everybody's heavy. Doesn't matter who. If you have to go to a 200, you're gonna, you're not gonna hit good FOC. There's just no way around it. But that that Rip TKO in a 250, as long as the air, the stock arrow shaft is long enough to use, because they do tend to be a little shorter than most. I think they're adding an inch to their length on their arrows this year because they've gotten that feedback a lot, the arrows being too short. Um, but that arrow is only nine grains an inch at 250. It's light. Yeah, and I, I mean – with uh, the durability portion is where you would normally run into issues, and I haven't messed with those arrows as much. Um, I've got VAP TKOs I've been jacking around with with this glue-in system, X-Impacts I've messed with from, you know, Black Eagle quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And, and yep. you know, the, the, the thing that, um, you know, that it's, you know, you're going to pay the tollman no matter what you're doing. So if you're trying to get higher FOC with a longer draw, you could potentially, well, you're definitely going to have, somewhat of a more brittle arrow compared to others, even if it's a stronger brittle arrow. So you're saying like that one's pretty damn good for durability, even at the lighter GPI. It is. It's one of the few that is like, it's not, it's not terribly heavy, but it's still relatively durable. And they, there's a layer of woven carbon over the outside of the shaft. So it, it makes it a little more rigid. And that's part of where they get that jump in stiffness without weight. So it's, it's unique, but they're coming out with that in a 200 and it goes up a whole bunch of weight. So that's just, there's, there's a couple of arrows in the market. When you look at where the jumps are, if there's a certain spine that you're trying to use, there's, there's ones that you can kind of get a little extra stiffness without having to go heavier, but there's very few, there's maybe three or four that jump like that. In general, it's, you know, a grain, a grain and a half per spine category, sometimes a half a grain. Um, but that one's unique in that regard. Yeah, no, and I, I again, like, let's just, you know, de uh, dealing with a 34-inch long draw. I mean, the worst when guys message me, you know, and I try to help, but I'm like, hey, I, you know, I'm a 32-inch draw shooting, you know, 84 pounds. I'm like, well, I feel bad for your pro shop. Like, I, you know, and then and, and trying to tune that over the, you know, over text or even I'll have guys call me is like, hey, man, there could be 
many variables to this, like, you know, when you're, when you're tuning, cause it's just maxed out in, even at 32, most, a lot of bow companies don't even have draw lengths over 32 inches. Um, I mean, what I'm trying to think there's a bow tech that goes longer, the Hoyt Highline. What, what bows even go? I mean, you're going to know more than um, over 32. Matthew, Matthew's Atlas, um, is another long bow. It goes to like 34 or 35 runs the switch weight mod system so you can uh, move it out to whatever poundage and length you want. But really in our shop, like those are the bows we sell. We, that's pretty much it for a long draw dude. And someone almost always ends up buying an Atlas or a Highline in general, because they're, they're one of the few bows that are truly just designed for a long draw length person. They're not another bow that happens to go out longer or that sort of thing. I know like the, uh, the reckoning 39s have a big cam on them. You can get a stupid long draw length with those, but it's really more of a target bow. Um, the, uh, the SS 34s go out long, but not like crazy long. So I, I, in general, if you've got a long draw length and not to, you know, narrow it down to only two companies, those are probably the two I would really look at as a Highline or a Atlas. Gotcha. Both and being good. So, uh, as we bring up bow, what, uh, What's your what's your bow of of choice? I don't think we covered that. I've used Bowtech more often than not. Um, I'm uh, I'm up for uh, innovation every year, and whoever I think makes the nicest bow for me at the end of each year, I'll use that bow. I'm not I don't have affiliations with anybody because I sell everybody, and I don't want any. I don't want to be stuck having to use this brand this year versus somebody else because of a contract or anything like that. So I, um, I've got a Matthews and a Bowtech that I've used this year. And I don't know what I'll be using this next year, but there's a good possibility it'll be something different. Um, I've changed a lot. But over the last like seven years, I've mostly shot Bowtech, largely due to their innovative timing and uh, wielding adjustability because it's just really really cool to be able to make a tiny little adjustment and watch my broadhead and my field point 60 yards just move with something I did with an Allen wrench and didn't touch the arrow rest. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'd give uh, elite a close second on that for variable tunability things. They're doing a good job in that. I really do dig that small little adjustments that you can tweak your bow. If you're a nerd like me that really wants to be able to make those tiny, tiny little adjustments. Yeah. And I, I'm a nerd like you. And so that set technology for, for me, it's not, and I was talking to Nathan Brooks and and Darren on the podcast and it's not a massive adjustment system. It's, it's tweaking, it's fine tuning. It's okay. I'm tearing a fraction or a little bit to the left or right. It's not something I want to max out, you know, but I mean, having said that, um, Dude, it is nice. And uh, same thing, And I, anytime I've tuned that deadlock system, um, it definitely was a warm and fuzzy for me because I, I just, dude, the worst days of my life were, pu- pu- you know, pushing an axle through and watching donuts fall over my shop floor just thinking, fuck, <laughs> I know I'm not going to find yeah. all of them. Yeah, no, that's a complete pain. Um, and on the uh, on the elite system, I'm, I'm glad that they still have the shim ability too. So whenever I'd put one of those together, I would shim the cams to get it as straight as I could. And then I'd use the set for fine tuning stuff. Um, and then you could tweak it a little bit later. So it's a kind of like the best of both worlds on that system. That's a really well designed deal. Um, I just, with the uh, ability to change my cam position so finitely, it's really hard to beat the, the, the deadlock. 
But um, that's the closest second I can find in the industry. They're doing some good stuff with that. And, and I know they had some cam rubbing issues um, in most of it, from what I understood, was maxing out the, you know, the set technology. And so what I was trying to explain, like that Omnia, for example, was what I call a hard cam. And when I say that, it, mm-hmm. it's generally uh, a PSE Omen's the same way. It's going to take a stiffer arrow. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I, I would shim it to the left you know, almost immediately for a right-handed shooter, uh, just cause I knew that more than most light, when I say that, obviously I would have somebody shoot through the paper, but rather than trying to max out the deadlock, I would shim the cam to the left and pretty much be able to leave the deadlock there, except for micro, you know, ad- adjustments. And, and some, te- some guys would just max that deadlock out and, and, or not, excuse me, the deadlock, the, the set technology. And I, I, I just try not to do that. So. Yeah, it's a it's a fine tuning deal. You want to you still want to treat that cam system no different than any other spacer system. You know, use that ability. And I, I gotta, I once again, I gotta hand it to Elite. They have more spacers than anybody by a long shot. There's been times where I've taken the stock spacers out of another bow and used theirs because there's so many different sizes. So you can really move the cam small amounts that it needs to get those wheels relatively straight. And I, I'm sure you've probably found this, but um, in bows that tuned well off of just adjusting the wheels um if you ever drew it back in a draw board and put a laser on it the cams are pointed at each other yeah have you found that yeah and i've tried yeah. not to die <laughs> so uh we can go into this because you'll you can you can help but when you it's no different from a, a recurve if you shoot a laser from limb tip to limb tip when when you mm-hmm. shoot that laser um and and i i don't want to there are certain bow companies that are inherently a pain, an epic pain in the ass to, to tune and, and have lemons that you just sometimes can't tune. And with what you're talking about, I've found like literally black and white throughout when those line up, it's ne- I've never had a problem. Um, you want right. to dive into that a little bit, you know, more? Sure. Um, Oh, I started a series last year that I only got about four into um, that I'll keep going back to every year. And it's uh, wheeling, adjusting a bow. And I'll take a particular brand and I'll explain how to do it and then show you each setting that it offers. Um, That sounds like a whenever I get a bow to tune. Epic pain in the ass, by the way. So good on you for doing it. it. it, Well, it is. Um, Aaron, but I, like, like I said, I, I want everybody to feel like they can work on their own bow. And if this resource isn't out there, they're not gonna, they're going to be scared. Because none of this is that common. If you get those cams at full draw to point at each other. And what I, what I mean to the, whoever's listening, um, by pointing at each other is if you put a laser on the cam at full draw and make sure it's pointed directly at the other cam in the same spot you're measuring from on top and bottom and you have the adequately spined arrow and the bow is timed, the top cable and the bottom cable hitting the stops at the same time, you walk over to paper and put an arrow through it, it's gonna shoot a hole. It's incredibly rare that it doesn't. So bows that give you the ability to set it up that way to begin with are just gonna save you a ton of grief. And when they're set up that way and built that way, they tend to shoot down range incredibly accurately. So to me, if I can't get it to do that, I'm not really interested in the product. Like if I can't adjust it that way, I probably won't carry it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's good advice. And and there's always going to be certain quirks with different bows each year will change. And when I say that, 
one bow might tune a little bit above the burger hole a little bit better than maybe dead center in the burger hole or things like that. But as a rule of thumb, well, I say as a rule of thumb, it's like anything, there's there's going to be rules that you really don't want to break. Um, and, and some of what you're talking about are the ones that I really agree with. It's like, there's just certain things that make your life easier, make a bow more tunable. And then there's other things that while you may listen to the mental gymnastics of someone explaining it, in the end, they're they're just kind of putting a Band-Aid on a, a bullet hole. I guess you could say it's still a pain in the ass. Absolutely. 100%. No. Personally, if I can't if I can't make those point at each other, I won't shoot it at all. I just, no, I'm not using that bow. Well, I'm not I, interested. I know I'm going to run it rubs. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just you 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 can run into, and you may not run into problems out of the gate when you just got it to tune perfectly, but later on, and I found this like, um, and, and not this, this specific topic, but sitting in a ground blind when it's 100 degrees and going to freezing cold, there are bows that are just inherently harder to keep in tune, you know, than others, especially when you talk about adverse conditions. And that's always a a big one for me, um, especially when I know guys are getting after it, that, um, you know, there's, there's just certain bows that, that are, they're, they're just a pain to stay and keep in tune. And, and, and I, I found that, I don't know about you. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. There's definitely, uh, there's definitely a list of bows that are, are really a pain when the environment changes or just as you use them, it's amazing how you'll, you'll build something, you'll tune it up good, everything's square. And then two months later, you go check it and it's not square anymore, but there's no adjustments to for reason why it would change. It's, I found that with a couple different brands too. It's really odd. It's like everything here should keep this thing orientated straight and it's not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, and it's been like that since time began. I mean, I don't, I've found that for 25 years that, yeah. And I mean, the same thing goes for a bow. I'm interested to get your take on this. And I've, I've brought this up with a few different guys I've had on the podcast. When you get a person that's not overly, uh, you know, techie or, or doesn't have a lot of experience, but they'll say something effective. I never should have sold, you know, bow X, like that thing shot better for me. Uh, you know, anybody I've had and I've been like, I had, how, what was the axle to axle? They'll tell me, I'm like, all right, what, you know, brace height, uh, you know, where the cams real big, like what was the string angle? And I've really found that that string angle is something that is overlooked for people. And and it could have been that, well, I just don't think they realize that their head positioning marries up like your wife, like it's a perfect marriage of that string angle. And that is probably one of the things overlooked of why someone shoots one bow better than the other. And and for me, I want like a 35 to 37 inch type string angle. Um, for, I like a longer bow. I'm shooting a freaking verdict right now. And I mean, I'm moving over to the ethos, which is more of a 35 string angle. Talking to talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you a hundred percent. You'll get I'll get customers, same thing, man, I just never shot anything as good as I shot this. And in general, it's, you know, the draw length being right. And then the string angle being right. Cause that's where you're comfortable and your head sits. So if you, if you have a string angle that isn't comfortable for you, when you draw back and point at a target, if you stay on target for a longer period of time, you'll catch yourself pulling in and out of your feet based off of your face structure, trying to sit on that string angle. And if you find the right string angle, you tend to not pull out of it. Um, uh, uh, something I'll probably add into my bow review starting next year. Cause I always try to add one or two things. I'll probably start measuring the string lobe off point at draw. 
So it'll allow you to tell that at your draw length if it, what really compared, because an axle to axle isn't going to do that, and an end to end isn't going to do that. But if you draw the bow back all the way and then measure where the string's leaving the cam on either end, you should be able to find the same string angle on a bow. But it, it's hugely important. String angles overlooked drastically, and it's it's a hard thing to measure for the average person, but I'm hoping that will allow you to try to find a comparable in the future. So with the string angle, let's dive into that a little bit more uh, where this is important. One, when when you, you'll ever hear somebody yell in the military, you know, you, you know, about moving your head around the rifle, not your rifle, you know, back and forth. I'm screwing that up. You don't want to really dip down or back into the string. And I, I kind of have a propensity of kind of leaning into the, you know, the string a little bit when I shoot a shorter bow. And, uh, you yeah. know, I, and I, I can make it work, but when I shoot like a verdict, I draw back and I don't lean my head in. And I've, I've tried to talk to people because I've had some people comment like, Hey, why are you dipping your head in? It's like, well, the, the V of the string is so tight. I, I kind of have to wear a longer one. I don't, but where this really comes into play is peep fade. Well, one just comfort in general, right? Consistency. Mm-hmm. And then when that Mm -hmm. consistency at longer distances up and downhill, your peep fade is bad. And when I say fade, like out of the top or out the bottom, left and right, and then also when you're shitting your pants with an animal coming in, then it even (laughs) multiplies even worse. So when I hear guys talk about missing, let's say high or low, you're all, you're going to, one's going to be draw length. Like you may have too short or too long. One is the stabilization system. You may have too much weight out the front or the back. And then three is, is string angle and peep fade for, for me. Those are the things I look at, but go, go ahead and take it from there. Yeah, no string angles. Like, like you were saying, it's, it's crazy important. And it's crazy overlooked um, there. And there's ways to manipulate to try to find the same, right head position but typically you're monkeying with your loop length and trying to make it as short as possible and then trying to find the shortest release you can to try to get that head position up i mean if you look at like release design oh geez 20 years ago there was a big gap between where the release attached to the string and where your finger sat and that was largely because the bows were so long to try to get your head position a little more comfortable and as the bows got shorter and shorter and shorter those things all compressed so it's a it's a something I try to point out to people when they're picking out a release is trying to get that nose to trigger distance as short as possible. Cause almost everybody's buying a bow that's axle to axle wise, hard to get a good head position on, you know, they're buying a 29 to 33 inch bow in general. And those are all really hard to get a good head position on unless you have really short draw length. So the, the type of release you use will manipulate that a ton. But if you have a release that you like and a loop length that you like, your only choice is to shoot an appropriate end-to-end length at draw bow to get that head position right because you will fade in and out of your peep if it's wrong, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, especially at longer distances and up and down, oh. you, you know, hill. And generally when you're shooting up and down hill or long distances, there's a reason and you're also shitting your pants at the same time because you're doing those things. <laughs> because there's an animal there, it's a tar, you know, it's, you're shooting a tournament or, you know, whatever, very few people are going to be, you know, doing that. I mean, when I say very few at 120 yards, I really have to make a conscious effort not to fall out of the bottom of my peep when I'm shooting super long distance. And when I say that, I'm not talking like tons, 
But when you're shooting 120 yards, a little, and I mean a little, goes a long way. And when you fade out the bottom, you'll be a foot low and you're like, man, why am I low? Well, when you first started, if you were hitting the dot and then as you shoot more and get more comfortable, guys are like, man, I don't know, my string stretching. It's like, no, you're probably fading out the bottom of your peep. But I also set my peep height at 40 yards. I don't set it at five feet. I actually set my peep height at a longer distance to help compensate that a little bit as well. Yeah, no, I generally set mine at 50 to 60. Yeah. Same reason. I don't want to come out of the long stuff. I'd rather... I'd rather feel a little uncomfortable up close on trying to get into my peep because it won't make nearly as big of a difference as I would at, you know, a hundred or what have you. So I tend to run mine uh, farther out as well. And that's exactly why. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing with you, like with the releases um, and this is, I have found, you know, you can get like a, a hinge, uh, a thumb button and an index finger to hit real close to the same spot. But, you know, a lot of people get confused with that. And a lot of time it's because the, the shank length or whatever you want to call it is a little bit different. Some of it's tuning and face pressure and things like that, but it's going to be pretty difficult for someone to shoot some type, any type of an index finger going to a thumb button and going to a hinge for the point of aim and impact. You may get the elevation correct, but the windage is going to be off. That's going to be one different length of shank and then also facial pressure, but... Have you found that the same? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's near impossible to find those things to hit in the same spot. And it's typically a left to right. It's not normally an up and down. It's almost always left to right. And I think it's the, the length of the jaw that opens up, pitches the string loop off a little differently and gives you a little bit different left to right fade and a little bit different wobble. Um, do you find ones that hit all in the same spot? Please let me know because I have yet to find ones that hit in the exact same spot. So I can get a Scott Verge and a Scott Longhorn uh, micro hit in the same spot, and that's the end of my story because that is the only two I've ever found to hit in the same spot, and that's out to you know 100 to 120 yards. Yeah, I've had like two sight marks on my bow before, which is redneck as shit, but like hunting in the wind with whitetail <laughs> – I'll be like seven mm-hmm. clicks over, right? And that's my index finger release. And then I have my hinge, which is marked with a Sharpie. And people are like, are you serious? I'm like, dude, hunt whitetail in the wind when they're walking. Like an index finger, I'm a hinge guy. Um, and that verge mm-hmm. kind of, you know, fix it. Or or even if I shoot a longhorn hunt or something like that. But, I mean, you got to rip it off sometimes whitetail hunting. I, I, I will anyway. And you, you have the choice of, oh, grunt and, you know, stop it. It's like, yeah, you're also grunting and making it alert as shit. So I have chosen at closer distances to just shoot them walking rather than mm-hmm. grunt and try to have them stop. Well, that is not the easiest thing to do. And punching an index finger, if you're good at it, is not nearly as violent as ripping off a hinge. And so ripping off a hinge, I have not found to work the the best. And so that's when I, I mean, that's why people, like I would, when they are asking, I've been like, hey, you're going to have a hard time to get the same point of impact. And that's generally why is whitetail hunter is shooting in the wind and ripping one off. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I just shot a, a whitetail last week and uh, I shoot an on X click and it's the first arrow I've sent out of that release hammer in the ground. <laughs> I got it back to the click and bang. <laughs> I couldn't, uh, couldn't help myself because it's windy and they're moving and you, you just can't like make that clean. You're going to react. And it's important to have something that you can still do consistently when that happens. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. And I, you know, when we're talking about consistency and I don't want to keep you on for, you know, too much longer when, when, you know, when people, when, when people message me about getting a, a bow set up, um, I just had a guy message me of kind of, Hey, top to bottom, what would you put on an, an ethos? Right. And so I put the site I prefer, uh, the rest, the normal stuff. And then, but the stabilization system, um, is going to be one that if everything else fits correctly, meaning the draw length is right and he's got the peep height right, the stabilization stabilization system on bows, a lot of guy, time I've seen guys just throw shit on it with no actual rhyme or reason. They just throw an offset bracket. It looks cool. And there's actually a way to get the bow to hold better and more consistency consistently that's why that's on there and that's why they're adjustable but but testing and tuning to that is very very important and i want to hear kind of your method with that and and what you do and what you suggest to guys and gals well i for a hunting bow and this is probably going to be i've been playing with uh sidebar and front bar for a while and on a hunting bow, I think I'm going to take it off. I think I'm just going to run um, a single front bar with a side, and and uh, and something where if I'm getting in and out of rigs and in and out of machinery and whatnot, it's been such a pain to have a big side bar on there that I think I'm going to take it off. But in general setup, I try to run my front bar mm, two to three times as long as my side bar on target, and then hunting, I'll do like um, twice as long on the front as the side at most, maybe a little less. And I'll usually end up with, oh, it, it varies bow to bow because you're going to play with how much in the front and the back to where it points and balance is best for you. Um, but I'll usually run about twice as much on the back as the front to start. And then I'll just start adding in the front of the back, depending on if I'm dropping out of the bottom of the target or pulling out. And I try not to move my, my sidebar out too much just because it's awkward in a hunting situation to have it sticking out a lot. Um, but, and I just play with it till it points personally, I'm not the greatest at it personally, cause I've never really been, um, a phenomenal target guy. I never spent a ton of time on that circuit. Somebody like Gillingham would explain it better than I could. Um, but that's what I found works for me. How do you like to set yours up? Yeah. I mean the same, I, that's the thing is like when you go to like, it's a game of, you know, pros and cons and uh paying the the tollman do you shoot that much better with a big dongle hanging off the side of your bow or is it a minuscule amount and it and it's not worth it and so i usually run about 30 percent up front on my front bar and 70 percent on the back so if i got three ounces on the front i've got seven ounces on the back is my starting point. I'm generally running 10 to 12, maybe 14 inches out the front. I think actually now I've got a 15 inch out the front, but you know, any more on the hunting bows, I, I, uh, I jack around with multiple quiver stabilizers. I've used that, uh, the quiverizer quite a bit. And the one thing I really like is that cash bar, um, that he sells. It Mm -hmm. looks goofy as shit. It looks like I have a muffler coming off my, back of my, <laughs> yeah. but I like that because I keep my repair kit, extra broadheads, things like that inside. And so now as goofy as it is, I really set my bow up to have that on and then start adjusting my my, my stabilization system from there. And, and when I say that is if you're a, a guy listening or a gal right now, and you're a really good shot at 50 yards, that's your comfort zone or 60 or 80, whatever that is. Well, 
just shoot groups and jack with it. And if you're not noticing a difference, then don't carry the extra weight. And if you are, and you're really like less pin float, yeah, then carry the extra weight. But, you know, I, I do see a lot of guys um, and gals, but mostly guys is, is just throwing a bunch of crap on for no reason. You don't want to carry it for no, for no reason, right? It's extra weight. So just kind of play with it, add some weight on the front and the back until you get where it holds comfortably. But if if you're not that good of a shot to begin with, you you probably should just you know really work on form and and um, shooting ability than than you know really diving down what vein what foc you know really like like you 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 probably just mm-hmm. want to work on your form um, more than anything. Oh, hundred percent. People need to spend a lot more time shooting their bow and a lot less time buying gear for their bow. Like that, that's really the biggest problem. And the. Uh, the option setup, the um, equivalizer and the cash bars are really, really cool setup. There's a couple of things I wish it did differently, but that's a really good setup for, uh, it's a, it's a wiser place to put your weight. It makes a heck of a lot of sense. Um, so I get why you're using it. It's a good, it's a good setup, but yeah, people just need to shoot more in general. And, and I don't shoot that all the time. Like it, there's times to have equivalizer on and there's times not to. And, and I try mm-hmm. to get that word out because I'm sure you you test stuff more than I do or as much for sure is I'll have something on my bow for a month and then it's gone. And they're like, Oh, it's what happened? I'm like, nothing. It's still good. I'm just trying something else. You know, I'm, I, it's, I, I'm seeing how yeah. this other system works. And so like with the Quivalizer, you know, there's pros and cons to that depending upon where you're hunting and what you're doing. And you know, there's pros and cons. I mean, guess what I'm getting at is there is no perfect system for everything. One of the things I wish the equivalizer had was a double gripper um, for mechanicals. They're a pain in the ass with mechanicals. Um, I'd like to see a double gripper. I'd like to see an adjustment system for weights on that, where if you wanted to add or take away weight on it, I, you know, I would like to see that. I also think having an adjustment in the middle, a flick lock, like a walking stick would be genius because I'm cutting mine off with a freaking hacksaw because I don't want it that long, right? I shorten it up a little bit. I don't want that much sticking out. Having that flick lock, and I hope Dan's listening and he copies some of this because it, it would make a good product even better. I agree. Yeah, there's a couple tweaks you can make to that thing to make it really, really pretty neat. But um, in general, it's a it's a great idea. It really is. I'm he. Uh, I, I've known Dan forever. Like we used to work together in the the outdoor sportsman back when he was in college and uh he's he's usually bounced new product ideas off me once he went that way and he uh he showed me that idea for the first time i was like this is the dumbest thing i've ever seen (laughs) but once you shot it you're like okay i get it this is pretty smart um and nobody thought of it that's a very unique idea which is a testament to the guy's brain and how creative he is yeah, he, he is. Well, speaking of creative things, and I'll leave you alone after this. So with the uh, the Broadhead review that's coming out, and then I did the vein thing. And I really, on the vein thing, the only reason why I did it is I got that prototype vein from AAE as I was testing all these mm-hmm. other veins out, just because I was testing noise of vein to Broadhead, trying to quantify there is just some veins that are quieter with broadheads and vice versa than than others. Um, and when I say quieter, I say I worded that wrong. There are broadheads that are loud as shit, and it doesn't matter how quiet your vein is. And so, you know, we were testing all of that. So anyway, um, dude, the the easy vein. Have you seen those? Have you tested those at all? I ordered some. I had a ton of people message me about this easy vein, and I hate fletching. Like hate 
fletching like mayonnaise. Hate fletching. I fucking hate fletching arrows. So the easy vein <laughs> looked really cool. Have you messed with those at all? No, I, I, I haven't even heard of it. That's a, I had nobody messaged me about that. I'll have to look it up. You should look those up and then potentially carry them. So, I mean, I can't say I don't have them yet, but you basically, it's like a four arrows glued to or, or molded into a wrap. They're molded. And then you put a small amount of glue at uh, two spots on the arrow, just slide it up, stop it, and all of your fletches are glued on at one time. And it, uh, you can do custom, so you can do high profile, low profile, two and a half, two and a quarter, three. I did, I did left, I did two degree left helical, low pro two seven fives. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of, I like a lower profile vein when, or moderate profile. So I'm going to give it a whirl because I mean, at the very least, if you blow through a bunch of animals, you got to refletch or something or have a bad one. Dude, I mean, literally, it's like taking away my birthday. I'm like, fuck, I got to refletch again. So I'm over scratching the veins off. And, <laughs> you know, so with these, and, I, you know, that's much quicker. But, yeah, check them out. I'll be interested to get your feedback on those. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look into it for sure. Um, I remember, uh, who was it? Like NAP that made, like, those shrink wrap Yeah, I hated those veins. things. Yeah, I wouldn't. Back when they, they didn't work right. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, how whatever this technique is actually works correctly. If you can simplify fletching an arrow, uh, people will love that because nobody likes doing that. I guess there's a small people that like doing it, but I hate doing it just as much as you do. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, nope, not a not a fan. Um, so, well, man, I don't. I, again, I really appreciate you uh, hopping on. Like I said, I was gonna talk to you at the Utah uh, Tack, but I was way too busy and you know how that goes so i i'd message dan i'm like hey dude i don't really know josh i'm not 100 percent sure he even likes me but ask him if he wants to hop on a podcast so i appreciate you hopping on <laughs> yeah happy to do it anytime you know i'm gonna do it again just give me a shout cool sounds good man well uh where actually before i forget where can people where do they find you your archery shop your page all that stuff uh, podiumarcher.com is the website, Spokane Valley Archery and, uh, Green Acres, Washington here. And, uh, my Instagram's podiumarcher. So there you go. Cool. All right. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. It's good talking. Take it easy.